Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, I got some stuff I want to get to in the news, but, I, but I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, one of the truly impressive Americans, uh, somebody who has been controversial, uh, but also uh, seen as one of the leading military leaders of our time, General Stanley McChrystal. He's got a new book out, fascinating new book called Leaders, Myth, and Reality. We're going to talk to him in just a few minutes. But first, we got some stuff to get to. Uh, first of all, I, interesting to see the president apparently has got Robert Mueller on his mind. Just a little bit. Uh, big news out of the Mueller investigation. Uh, Paul Manafort uh, and his cooperation agreement with uh, Mueller's office out the window. Mueller says he's got evidence that he is prepared to present in court that Manafort lied. Uh, we'll see where that leads. Is, is that Mueller either losing his star witness uh, and and watching a key part of the case collapse, or does he got the goods? And it would seem from the president's reaction that he's still a little bit worried because he continues to rail against Mueller as a as part of a witch hunt, uh, and, uh, and and seems to be again trying to. To, to sow a lot of doubt and a lot of a lot of worry about what Mueller's motives are in advance of we know not what. He's he's once again talking about the witch hunt, but it, it seems to me that he's actually going a little further. Uh, he is now questioning in very personal terms Robert Mueller's personal integrity. And th- 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 there is a ferocity with which he is speaking. Uh, now, I know we've been talking about a witch hunt for a long time, the 17 angry Democrats and all of that. But... The thing we don't know is is what is driving the president's anger. Is it simply that he's watching what's happening with Manafort and uh, Corsi as he, you know, Papadopoulos uh, in, 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 in jail now for a couple of weeks? Is it just what, what he's seeing the special counsel do? Or has he been told something? Has he been told something? You know, we, we saw Alan Dershowitz uh, tell George Stephanopoulos on Sunday that he believes that this report, at least from a political view, will be devastating to the president. Um, is that what's driving the anger? Does he know something more? Is he gearing up for the kind of action that we've been talking about, but he's never done, whether it be a pardon or pardons or, or a firing of, of Mueller? Or does he know something, maybe from his new acting attorney general, who would have visibility on this now, does he know things about the investigation uh, that are not yet public? And the timing of this is fascinating to me, John, because no one knows what Mueller's endgame is here. But we do know that just last week, the president uh, delivered his the answers to his, the questions that he was asked to the special counsel's office. We don't know what the questions were, or we don't know, what, and we don't know what the answers are. But the fact that this cooperation agreement falls apart just days after that, and that the special counsel's office says specifically that they can prove that Manafort lied. I've got to think there's there's some connection there. You're worried if you're in the White House right now and advising the president, are you worried that they've got the president in a lie, that they have evidence about that? That's quite a threat. And the idea that this could now play out in in court filings uh, opens up an intriguing range of possibilities about what, how Mueller is going to play this next critical phase of the investigation. And let me remind you of all the things that we don't know, the, 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 the known unknowns in the Rumsfeldian uh, view. We, we, we don't know Mueller's timeline. We don't know if Mueller is going to actually release a report publicly. He can't actually. I mean, it would have to go through the, the Justice Department, but is he going to release a report that would then be released by the acting attorney general? If it's not, will there be a fight with Congress? What, what will be the focus of that report? We don't know what's going on with uh, the, the kind of 
other aspects of the investigation that have been farmed out. We have we have we we know there's an investigation in the Southern District of New York. That's where Michael Cohen uh, has has been interviewed. We know there's an Eastern District uh, of New York uh, investigation related to all this. So there's there's a lot that we don't know, uh, but you get the sense. And again, Mueller's never said anything about this, so we don't know directly from him. But the expectation among all those who have touched the special counsel in some way, been interviewed by or been targeted by or uh, interacted in some way, that we are coming to a, a point of action by the end of the year. We don't know that for sure. Right. And it, and it does. And another thing we don't know is whether Paul Manafort's play here in seemingly to guarantee himself a the rest of his life in prison by letting this cooperation agreement uh, pass, if Paul Manafort is expecting a pardon from the president of the United States. And we know what the political consequences would be. We think we know the political consequences uh, of, 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 of pardoning his former campaign manager after having built the federal government and being found guilty of these charges and then lying to federal agents about it. Uh, but we don't know what kind of communications have happened. We don't know what the expectation is. And, and in Trump, there's a lot of moves left for, for President Trump and the, and the White House team, even though Mueller has the answers and controls this part of the game. I want to touch on one other thing, which I, I had a chance to talk to the president uh, with a, you know, White House reporters on the South Lawn and, and asked him about this climate change uh, report. Yeah. Uh, very interesting report released, obviously, the day after Thanksgiving, 13, was it 13 government agencies. Uh, uh, this is a report mandated by Congress, but the White House actually did go, actually released it. Um, they did it. They did it on, on Black Friday in the afternoon. Sure. Uh, perhaps trying to bury it. I, I would argue that if the intent was to bury it, it actually backfired because there wasn't much else going on. So you had a front page story across all the papers and news that dominated uh, coverage throughout the holiday weekend and maybe a few dinner table conversations as well over the over the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, but I asked the president about it, and I just want to play what he had to say. Uh, Mr. President, have you read the climate report yet? I've seen it, uh, I've read some of it, and it's fine. But it's, they, they say economic impact could be devastating. Yeah, uh, I don't believe change. it. You don't believe it? No, no, I don't believe it. Right now we're at the cleanest we've ever been, and that's very important to me. But if we're clean, but every other place on earth is dirty, that's not so good. Uh, so you heard the beginning of that, he says, I don't believe it. To be clear, I wasn't asking him if he believes in climate change, I was asking him about the reports what the report said about the devastating economic impact of climate change. And and the report is stunning in the breadth that it brings into this because we think about climate change as, well, it's going to mean more severe storms or it's going to mean maybe a species, dis- species displacement. This is a cataclysmic series of events coming down the pike. And it's not just scientists with the federal government. It's a range of scientists who've been saying this for years, for decades now. Uh, and it is still a dogma of a major political party in this country that uh, we don't know the causes and we can't do anything about it anyway. And President Trump is continuing to stand on an island that is falling under more and more water. It is flooding. And as a political matter, the president saying, I don't believe it, gives cover to his party to continue to say, maybe not. This is alarmist. We've we've seen some people come out there and say, well, this is just this is climate scientists trying to make money or trying to get rich off of it or trying to to raise alarms all over again, bring back Al Gore. Uh, The bottom line is this is happening and it's going to make everything else that that we talk about uh, in politics look small by comparison. I am curious how long the Republican Party can hold out with that being an article of faith 
uh, with its president and and throughout the leadership to say that that climate change either does not exist or isn't man-made or may not be man-made or is made up by scientists or exaggerated in some way. When you have this kind of stunning announcement from the federal government that just reinforces everything we've been seeing and hearing for years. And, and the report was obviously got headlines because of its dire predictions of, of what will happen. But I think there were two other very important facts. One is it says bluntly and in the first sentence of the report that, uh, that this is largely due to human activity. So it wasn't one of these because you heard kind of a, you know, the, some Republicans, Marco Rubio said, well, you know, the climate is changing, but we don't really know why. Maybe there could be some contribution with human activity, uh, but there are a lot of other factors. This says the primary factor is human activity. And the other thing that the report says is that the effects described in its forecast could be mitigated with action, action to take to limit the release of carbon into the atmosphere. So who knows where this is all going to go? We'll have to wait for a full discussion on on, on climate uh, for for another another show. But I would say that one of the things that has been talked about is some form of a carbon tax or a cap and trade or whatever. And I don't know if you saw the news in in France right now. Uh, Macron is trying to uh, do do a little bit of that um, and and facing massive protests from from those outside of Paris. So this is. Uh, Paris or Pittsburgh. <laughs> Paris or Pittsburgh. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. All right. So, uh, so Rick, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, again, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. General Stanley McChrystal, what he thinks about President Trump's leadership and what he writes about the qualities of good and bad leaders through time. We'll be back in just a moment. You see headlines across your screen all day, but you're busy. What do you need to know? What's actually shaping your world? I'm Brad Milkey from ABC News, and every morning we start here. It was extraordinary for us watching here in Singapore. This is ABC's new daily podcast, a handful of stories, just 20 minutes. Director Comey, thanks for being with us. Newsmakers, smart reporting, taking you straight to the heart of the story. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. All right, and welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now, we are honored to be joined now by General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, General, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we, we, you've got a new book out on leadership, which I look forward to, to talking to you about. Uh, but I, obviously there's, there's a lot in the news right now about our, the leadership of our current commander-in-chief, uh, specifically related uh, to his... Um, uh, to his uh, relationship with the military. And you, I mean, I, I remember you well from my days covering the Pentagon. I, I honestly can, can think of no military officer more widely respected uh, in, in, in that building uh, within, the, uh, within the military than you were. Um, I, I was there while uh, Gates was the uh, Secretary of Defense, and I remember him describing you as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met. So it's really an honor to have you with us. Well, you're kind to say that. Um, I, I want to start by playing you something that uh, President Trump said uh, in his interview, uh, recent interview with Chris Wallace uh, on Fox News about his relationship with the military. Listen to this. I don't think anybody's been more with the military than I have as a president in terms of funding, in terms of all of the things I've been able to get them, including the vets. I don't think anybody's done more than me. This is a, a really just an open-ended question. What, 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 what's your reaction to that, to the notion the president saying nobody's done more than me? 
Well, I, I obviously don't agree with it. I think that there are probably a couple of metrics on support of the military. And the first would be, you know, how much funding the military gets. But that's not the best metric of whether you support the military. The size of the defense budget is not a measure of patriotism or connection with those in service. Really, I think what a military needs is also an inspirational leader, someone that they have deep trust in, someone that they understand the policies, because if you send your sons or daughters off to war, you want to believe that the leader uh, is someone that you can trust. And so I would I would probably take some exception. I don't think that President Trump has developed as deep a, a real connection of trust with the military as perhaps he thinks he has. He clearly has support among um, uh, among the rank and file. I mean, we 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 we've seen he did did well among um, did did well among military uh, service members uh, in 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 his in his election. Uh, Republicans did well in the uh, in the midterms, but but it is striking that to 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 me to hear him. Uh, criticize some of the most uh, well-regarded military leaders in the country. I mean, and and, and let, let's say this is a, it's a complicated relationship. I mean, first of all, he, he's somebody that surrounded himself with retired generals uh, when, when when he became president. Uh, eventually, as chief of staff, obviously um, uh, putting General Mattis uh, at, at 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 the Pentagon. Um, but what 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 do you? What are we to make of, of, of a leader that that speaks the way he does about um, about very highly regarded uh, uh, military leaders in this country? Admiral McRaven, obviously, is the most recent example. Yeah. Uh, his uh, discussion on Bill McRaven, as well as his previous discussions on John McCain and others, have been something that's been deeply disturbing to a lot of thoughtful people. Now, there is a certain level of support from the military for President Trump, but but you can't ever judge the military as a breed. You have to judge them individually because that's what it's made up of. Um, President Trump does communicate in sound bites or in tweets and fairly simplified messages. And in many of those, they can resonate pretty well with people who are interested in security and things like that. But when you actually peel things back more, I know thoughtful people at every rank in the military have the same kind of concerns that people across the population do. And then the idea that you would so denigrate certain leaders, and some people are worthy of criticism. I'm certainly worthy of criticism. Uh, We all are. But the, the fact that he would take on people in this vitriolic manner I think is pretty upsetting to people. And the fact that he would be dismissive of the kinds of service that people like John McCain and others have given is also disturbing because many military people say there, but for the grace of God, go I. And in just a moment, you know, the president could turn on me and make the same kind of, of comments. And so I don't think it builds up the kind of trust that military people depend upon. The thing that military people really want from their leaders is the ability to believe that if we're sent in harm's way, that we will be supportive. That the things that the decisions are made with the best interest of those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in mind. It, it's a really emotional connection more than it is direct policy or certainly funding. 
General, your your book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, you cast a pretty wide net and and, uh, and a deep uh, a deep study uh, of uh, of a range of leaders uh, through religious institutions, political institutions, military institutions, uh, business. I'm curious, when you look at this president's leadership, what historical parallels you see? Uh, are there other Trump-like leaders that you've studied, that you see parallels with, and that you think we can learn from at the moment that we're in now? Well, you're right. There have been a, a range of people who have many of the same characteristics as President Trump. He's a populist by nature. He communicates to inflame and stimulate thinking and passions in people. And, and that's not a new thing. We've seen that in in various leaders around the world, uh, it usually doesn't end well, uh, whether they are domestic politicians uh, like Joe McCarthy or others who have simplified things and, and inflamed people. And so there's a cautionary tale in this. But I would ask people to, instead of just focusing on President Trump or any other single leader, what we really need to do is understand how much agency or responsibility followers have. As we looked at the 13 leaders in our book, the thing that came home to us is there's no leadership without followers. It's the interaction that produces this emergent uh, thing that is leadership. And so we have much more responsibility than we sometimes accept. We need to look in the mirror and decide, okay, what leaders do we want? What leaders are we willing to follow? And when we ask ourselves that question, it can bring up some some pretty disturbing questions for us, because if we stand by and let leaders emerge that we don't believe in, we need to understand it just didn't happen. We, in some cases, enabled it to happen or enable it to continue. When you said we need to look in the mirror, I, I, I am curious to talk for a moment about uh, the way that you looked yourself in the mirror on one of your uh, heroes or former heroes, perhaps, in, in Robert E. Lee. And you engage in kind of a reexamination of his leadership that I think is an interesting one in light of the broader reexamination of the Confederacy and, and Confederate military history and, and the, the, the reverence in some corners for for the Confederacy and, and leaders likely. What conclusions did you come to that you think are important to share at this moment? Well, I came up to a couple. The first was a conclusion about Robert E. Lee. I had studied and I had admired him my whole life. He was probably the only leader that I could say, well, he's perfect. Everything he did is, is basically right. He had all the attributes. And so I held him on a pedestal, as many people did, and as we see in society with all the, the paintings and statues of Robert E. Lee. He was almost above criticism, even at West Point when I was there studying him. But when I thought further about it, what I really realized is he was like anybody else. He was flawed. And in 1861, when he made the decision to go with the South, he made a deeply immoral choice by supporting slavery. Now, I accept the context of the moment, and, and I have not come to hate Robert E. Lee and many things about him I admire deeply still. But I look at him more holistically. I realize that as good as he was in many ways, he was very human and very flawed. And then when I turn that back, I realize I'm the same way. I'm very human. I'm not, I don't have all the good qualities Robert E. Lee did, but I certainly have plenty of flaws. And so the desire to oversimplify, to make two-dimensional some leaders or some depictions of people so that it's clearer to us, it's simpler, is, is a, it's a trap. 
And if we try to make ourselves into something that's two-dimensional as well, whether we want to portray it to others or even to ourselves that we are all of the things we want to be, we're kidding ourselves because we're not. We're flawed. And that doesn't make us bad. That makes us human. And so our willingness to look at things, what I would say is a 360-degree way and accept the bad with the good and try to work on the bad and, and obviously support the good, is more realistic. And I, what we try to do in our book by looking at 13 leaders across many spectrums is we found all of them had a lot of redeeming qualities. Even Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who we profiled, who was the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, had a lot of things about him that I grudgingly admire. But the reality is everybody's got to be looked at in this more complex way. Obviously, Robert E. Lee was a former superintendent at West Point, but I was struck... Uh, and maybe it's my own ignorance here, but but the way you describe the way he is revered at West Point or was when you were a student at West Point, is that is that still the case? Well, you know, I, I can't speak for the, the cadets right now, but when I was there, I lived in Lee Barracks. They maintained uh, paintings of him around. And when you talked about Lee, well, let me put it this way. You talked about all the other generals, Patton Eisenhower, and they were you know, studied and admired, but Lee was different. Lee was almost a perfect cadet. He got, he got no demerits when he was a cadet. He was referred to as the marble man by his classmates. And that wasn't all admiring. That was a little bit, you know, uh, of a criticism as well. But then he became the person at West Point who was subject to emulation. He, you couldn't be Robert E. Lee because he was too perfect, but you could use Robert E. Lee as sort of a guide guiding light for what you tried to be as a leader in your life. I think people at West Point are probably taking a wider view of him now, but in my entire time there, we studied his campaigns. We talked about what he'd done in the military, but we never had a deep discussion about his decision to go with the South. We never had a deep discussion about how he felt and dealt with slavery, both during and after the civil war. And there's some pretty disturbing uh, facts about Robert E. Lee's conduct during those years that, that just take a little bit of the shine off that perfect patina that that became so popular. You know, that's that is just mind-boggling to me that there wasn't a deeper discussion of that decision given the centrality of that decision, I mean, really in American history. So, uh, I mean... You're 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 the you're the military expert here. Certainly not me. So let let me just ask you just a just a basic question that may maybe too simple a question. But that decision that he made to turn down Lincoln's offer to lead the Union forces and to become leader of the Confederate forces, as you point out in your in your essay on him, this was more than a question of military leadership. Lincoln offered him that job because of the powerful symbolism of having a, you know, highly regarded leader of the South lead the Northern forces. Um, my sense is, you, you don't quite go there, so this is my question, is how much of a difference would it have made? That What's the counterfactual? If Robert E. Lee had accepted Abraham Lincoln's offer, how would that have changed the course of history, changed the course of the, of the Civil War? Yeah, it, of course, we can, never, we can never prove it, but it would have been a powerful symbol up front. 
and he was an extraordinarily competent officer. So if you assume that he had done as well leading, for example, the Army of the Potomac, as he did with the Army of Northern Virginia, it could have had a very significant operational difference. It could have also been assembled to maybe some other uh, Southern Army officers who decided to go with the Confederacy. And one of the, the points I'd want to make is, you know, we assume that because he was a Virginia, he just automatically went with Virginia. And so people sort of gave him a buy on the decision. It wasn't that easy. You know, slavery had been an argument for decades in the United States, and, and Robert E. Lee agonized over it. And then at the end of the day, what he did was he basically abrogated his decision and gave it over to what the voters of Virginia decided to do, whether they seceded and went with the Confederacy or not. And that was a huge deal. I mean, because he was violating an oath he'd made 32 years before on the plane at West Point, same oath I made later. He was trying to destroy the country that his role model, George Washington, had done so much to create. And at the end of the day, everybody knew they were doing it for slavery. In the 100 years after the Civil War, there was a, a whole narrative that came out and said the Civil War wasn't about slavery. But it, of course, was. It was about the maintenance of a way of life economically in the South that depended upon slavery. And he knew that. And so the reality is it was a practical decision, but it was a moral decision as well. And I don't think the gravity of that was lost on it. General McChrystal, you, you study, as you mentioned in this book, uh, good leaders as well as bad, forces for, for good in the world, forces for, for not good. Do you leave this study, and you talk about the need for personal responsibility and looking in the mirror, do you leave this exercise in, in historical uh, uh, learning around leadership? Do you leave more optimistic or less optimistic about where things stand today and what the capacity is for one individual leader to, to change the course of the country? You know, I, I'm a little bit more disturbed right now than I was before, particularly after writing this book. We looked hard at it because I think there's a crisis of leadership in America. And it's not in one person. It's not in President Trump or anyone else. It's in an entire way we're thinking about it now. We've, we've started thinking about leaders as celebrities. We've started thinking about leaders as flawless until we determine they're flawed and then we discard them suddenly. We started thinking that we as followers are supposed to sit in the bleachers and wait for the leader to tell us what to do, and then we, we go that particular way. And I think all of those are deeply incorrect. I think that we as the followers who elect, select, follow, support, do all the things that make a leader have any kind of ability to influence, we've weakened that. We have sort of stepped away from our responsibility. And, and we confuse leadership now sometimes with some traits, sort of management traits. You can get books that tell you if you do these things, you'll be an effective leader. I think that is not at the depth of leadership. I think there is a moral part of it. I think there's a values part of it. I think there's a courage part of it. I think there's an inspiration part of it. I think that leaders have got to make us better than we would otherwise be. Leaders aren't the people that figure out which way the wind is blowing, then go that way. They're not the people who see the parade already walking and they get in front of it. They're not the people who pull the petty side out of us, the darker part of us, and it's inside all of us. They're the people who help us see where we ought to go. Help us. They listen to us, but they also help shape our thinking. They help take us where we really need to go as a society. Franklin Roosevelt said a good leader 
can't get too far ahead of their followers. But a good leader should be helping the followers go the right direction. And if we can't get that from our leaders, if they're only a superconductor to our emotions, they're not, not really leading. They're doing something else. You dedicate your book to John McCain, who, of course, Donald Trump uh, really quite viciously attacked over over the years, beginning with a, his comments on his uh, status as a war hero. Uh, and John Lewis, who in turn has uh, been uh, vicious in his portrayal of, of Donald Trump as, frankly, a racist. Um, so I, I – and we, we've heard what you've had to say about – about Trump's uh, relationship uh, with with uh, military, with the military, particularly the military leadership, and other concerns you've had about Trump. But let me let me turn it around. You, you you've said that you go through and you find good traits in even somebody like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. What what do you find good in in Trump's leadership? Where is the where is the silver lining there? And and do you see any? scenario in which that comes to the fore in, in the balance of his time uh, in office? Yeah, it, it's an absolutely fair question. We dedicated the book to those two leaders because they both had really difficult experiences, and then they maintain a certain level of class, a certain level of courage and, and commitment is what I think is important. You know, if you look at a leader like President Trump or any other populist leader, one of the things that they are able to do is reach out and connect with people. They, they find things that are important to people. I would argue that probably for several decades, elites in America, and I use the term broadly, have failed the American people in many ways. If you think about the financial crisis of 2007 and eight, if you think about the Vietnam War, if you think about the resignation of President Nixon, there's an argument to be made by many Americans that, you know, they, they went on with the leadership of elites from both parties. They supported, they followed. In many cases, they didn't get a very good outcome. They got people who manipulated things. There was a tremendous amount of dishonesty to the American people. There has been this incredible income inequality, which has grown from a system that the scales are obviously tilted. So I think it's fair for the American people to say that the elites haven't really had our best interests at heart uh, time after time. And so someone like Donald Trump comes on and he reaches out to the people and he says, I get that. I am listening to you. And so there's a power in the populism. There, there can be an honesty in the populism. There can be an honesty that says, I understand that you are unhappy. Now, there's great responsibility in that because once you reach in and, and you stimulate people with that kind of ideas, then the danger is how you use those, how you shape those, how you lead those requires a tremendous amount of maturity. So the fact that President uh, Trump has gone around the traditional press by going straight to the people with social media and whatnot, the fact that he is in fact, it upended traditional politics in America is not all a bad thing. In fact, a friend of mine, you know, gave a great quote. He says, I think Donald Trump is the wrong answer to the right question. And so I think we have to look at it honestly that way. We can't say that Donald Trump is all wrong. We can say that Donald Trump emerged 
from a situation that was natural and, and maybe necessary. Whether he is now shaping it in the right direction is, is certainly open to great debate. All right. Well, General, you've been very you've been generous with your time. Um, I, I want one more kind of a news of day question before we let you go. Um, seeing these images on the southern border, uh, where obviously the uh, the president has dispatched um, uh, the military in a support role for the Customs and Border Patrol, uh, but we see these images that the, the tear gassing again, not by the military, by Customs and Border Patrol, but but. Uh, the military has been sent in a support role. What, what what are your thoughts when you when you see those images, and when you hear what the president has said about uh, about sending the military, uh, defining a role that seems at odds with what he can actually do uh, to to the southern border? I, I think it's unfortunate. Obviously, the military will do as ordered, but uh, I think. We have taken this particular situation and we have used images and mental images as well of an invasion of a column attacking and that sort of thing to convince a lot of the American people that we have an invasion of our southern border. And we have issues with immigration. Absolutely. And I think most Americans would agree that a sovereign nation needs to control its borders. But I think we have inflamed this one in a way that is not helpful. And so I think that is a manipulation that I'm not comfortable with. All right, General Stanley McChrystal, author of Leaders, Myth and Reality. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me. All right, thank you, sir. Thank you, General. Thank you. So, uh, interesting conversation, uh, particularly on on Robert E. Lee. Um, I grew up far north of the Mason-Dixon line um, and uh, never had that sense of reference for Robert E. Lee. I always kind of wondered when I came down here why I was driving on Lee Highway. (laughs) Right. I thought, isn't that the guy that wasn't wasn't he wasn't he uh, the leader of the of the of the cause of the traitors? <laughs> but I, you know, it's interesting to hear it from the military perspective because you see it from a cultural perspective and the, the statues of Lee and the the naming of of buildings and roads after Robert E. Lee has been a, a part of Southern heritage and tradition for some time. But and a lot of it, by the way, part of the Lost Cause movement. Right. I mean, we didn't get a chance to explore that, but right. the, one of the reasons why we see so many statues of Robert E. Lee. Is not this sense of, of his of his great leadership and all? It, it's because there was a frankly racist movement to kind of resurrect the idea of the of the Confederate South. Yeah, and we talked about that at length in a previous show with Mitch Landrew, Landrew yeah. uh, the, uh, the 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 former um, the former mayor of New Orleans, uh, about about his decisions, and, and of course it's become newly relevant. But yeah, from a purely military perspective, the the fact. According to General McChrystal, that generations of of military men and women came up uh, and 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 revered Lee for his military decisions without looking at that one decision yeah. to join. Yeah, not oh, we kind of gloss yeah, over that one thing. Yeah, 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 that yeah, yeah. kind of a kind of a big one. Uh, and I I think his his point from a military perspective about Trump is is also a very relevant one. The president has, I would say, a unique relationship with the military. He calls it my military, and he's used them in ways, sometimes as, apparently as part of political stunts. Uh, and, and, of course, the insults, uh, which were unheard of in, a, in a previous, any previous president. Right. Uh, and yet he does have a seeming bond, and, and it may be that, that, that the, the broader point that uh, General McChrystal makes about Trump maybe being the wrong answer to the right question may make its way into the military as well, that even for active duty men and women to hear some of the things he says in terms of insults of, of, of veterans, highly decorated veterans, um, is secondary or forgotten to the broader sense that he's got their back and the sound bites that emanate uh, out of that. 
All right, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. I want to thank our entire team, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, Trevor Hastings. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we will be back next week.